Okay, ignoring the repulsion between electrons provides a good approximation for explaining the periodic table up to what element? So, argon. Although, maybe it should have said the qualitative description, not a good approximation. But up to the argon, it explains the structure of the periodic table. What is the Fermi energy? If you populate the lowest quantum states of a system of fermions, the Fermi energy is the energy of the highest occupied state. So if you cool the solid down to absolute zero, the most energetic electrons would have an energy equal to the Fermi energy. <coughs> More questions. I'm confused about the question number one because in the book it gives the example of approximating the energy of helium, and it's off by 30 eV. So don't worry. We're going to calculate that two more times using better approximations. We'll get better every time. Uh, how dense is the solid of fermions at absolute zero compared to something like lead? So lead has electrons around it, so it is a solid made of fermions. The electrons are what make it solid. But maybe what you're thinking about is that some elements are denser than others because the nuclei are heavier. So as you go through the periodic table, there are more protons and neutrons in the nuclei. So if the nuclei are, are more massive, with roughly the same spacing between the atoms, the mass density grows. Electrons are fermions, which means no more than one can occupy any given state, yet the text says electrons are in fact identical fermions, so only two of them can occupy any given state. So he means uh, up to the spin. So the spin can be one up and one down. So you can have two electrons in the same state. Uh, two fermions can occupy any given state, a singlet configuration. Is this the same as the shell or case space or on the grid shared by two fermions? So it applies to any type of state. So it could be hydrogen state, some state in the atom, or just in momentum space. K-space. I found the 3D K-space hard to visualize. So if we called it momentum space, would that be easier to visualize? No. no. Uh, if you took the Fourier transform no. of Okay, <laughs> <laughs> think about every particle has a momentum, even classically. So instead of labeling it by where it is, label it by what its momentum is. So then a point in momentum space tells you that there's a particle that has that momentum if, if it's occupied. So if we fill up a sphere in momentum space, that means all the states inside that sphere, there's a particle with that much momentum. And it's three-dimensional because momentum can point in three directions. Section about the free electron gas is like a particle in a 3D box, but with more particles. How is the interaction of the electrons taken into account? Um, well, in the book, he doesn't take it into account, but people do take it into account, and then the Fermi surface gets more complicated. So I'll show you some pictures. It doesn't look like a sphere in lots of materials. It's a more complicated surface. Uh, but we're not going to do that because that's a project for graduate school. How can a quantum mechanical internal pressure stabilize a solid? Well, <coughs> I mean, if what makes the solid 
is the electrons. If the electrons were bosons, then the electrons in my hand could be right on top of the electrons in the table. So then I could move my hand into the table. Although I probably wouldn't have a hand if electrons were bosons. But um, someone want to elaborate on what this question means? We call it an internal pressure because we're making some classical analogy. But electrons, the fact that fermions can't, can only put two electrons in one state because of spin, you can't put any more than that. So, yeah? Can you give an example of material that bosons that have this, some kind of interaction? Mm. Well, <coughs> if you think about, do you know about superfluid helium? So you can arrange for a helium atom to act. If, if a helium atom can be like a boson if its total spin is uh, an integer. And so you can put helium atoms into the same wave function. So we're, not, we're, we're, not, we're, ignore, we're ignoring what's going in, on inside the helium and just looking at very low energy properties. So when you do that, if you cool helium down, all the helium atoms can go into the same state. And then it becomes a superfluid, so it flows without resistance. So, but it's still made out of fermions inside, so you can't collapse them into the same position. But they can flow, and it can flow without resistance because it can be in the same macroscopic wave function. We'll, we'll discuss that in more detail later. What determines the boundary between occupied and unoccupied states? So in this approximation where we neglect the electron repulsion, it's just how many free electrons there are in our material. So you can adjust that by putting in some different atoms that donate extra electrons. So that's what you actually do when you make semiconductors you dope it by putting in some different atoms that have extra electrons or fewer electrons. So you're changing the number of electrons in the solid, and that changes how filled the electron, how far the electron level gets filled up. Is that how like, silicon works too? Like, that's what they do. That's why silicon is doped with various things, yeah. Griffiths explains why the electron repulsion favors the lowest value of L. However, he doesn't do it very well, as he uses screen and C's to describe it without explaining what he means. So what he means is that we have some nucleus with some protons. And then the electrons in some low-lying energy levels. And there's some electrons in some higher energy levels. Now, if the electron is in this lowest energy level, n equals 1, then it's going to see the full charge of this nucleus. But this electron out here that's further away, because it has some higher, higher angular momentum, remember the centrifugal term pushes the electrons away. So higher angular momentum will be further away. And between it and the nucleus will be these other electrons in the inner shell. And these guys are repelling these guys whereas the protons are trying to attract them. So effectively, this guy up here sees a smaller effective charge. 
because there's some repulsion from the electrons that are closer to the nucleus. So if the effective charge is smaller, then the binding energy is smaller. So we saw that the binding energy goes like the charge of the nucleus, the charge of the nucleus squared. If the binding energy is smaller, that means the energy level is higher because binding energy is a negative energy below the free energy. So if we make it smaller, we're moving up the energy level. Is that better? It's different. Uh, how well are we expected to know the electron configuration of the periodic table? So again, it's not, we're not trying to memorize lots of things here. We're trying to understand. So since we all understand hydrogen now, then you should be able, with this hand-waving story here, be able to explain the structure of the periodic table up to potassium because you're just saying that we're neglecting the electron repulsion, so it's just using hydrogen energy levels to explain the structure. So you should understand the part that relies on understanding hydrogen because you need to understand hydrogen since that's the only thing that we can solve exactly. Okay. So, just to remind you guys, tomorrow's office hours have to be moved to today for this week only. So, today at 4. And if you can't come today at 4, then make an appointment or send me an email. So, last time we were um, practicing adding two spins together and making eigenstates of total spin. And what we found is that obviously if you take two spins, which are vectors, the spins are aligned in the same direction, then the total spin can, <coughs> the maximum value is when they're pointing in the same direction, so the total spin can be the sum of the two individual spins. And then using lowering operators, we can lower that by one unit. And then we can keep going down until the spins are anti-aligned. That's the smallest the total can be. So we're going to practice that a couple more times before moving on. So let's take a different example. We'll take some orbital angular momentum. So we'll take L equals 1. We'll take a spin 1 half. So say it's an electron in an L equals 1 orbital. What's the total angular momentum? Write the total angular momentum as J, so that's L plus S. Orbital angular momentum plus quantized internal intrinsic angular momentum or spin. And to do our calculations, we'll need lowering operators. So that's just the sum of the the total angular momentum raising and lowering operators are the sum of the orbital and spin raising and lowering operators. And we know from your homework assignment what those guys do. So lowering the orbital angular momentum gives you a state with one less unit of angular momentum in the z direction. Get this 
crazy factor up front. And the spin does the same thing. So we'll call the Z component uh, SM for people who don't like calling this M and that M. And it has exactly the same form because the spin operators obey exactly the same commutation relations. is that spin can be half integer, and an orbital can. So what's the biggest value of j that we can get if we combine L equals 1 and S equals a half? 3 halves. And we know that that state when the spins are aligned, so you can start with the, the top state, the state that has the maximum value of angular momentum in the z direction. It's when the orbital angular momentum in the z direction has one unit, and the spin has a half. So it's the state where both the angular momentum are aligned. And then, what does, yeah? What does the first line mean? So this LMSSM. So this is our orbital angular momentum eigenstate. This is our spin eigenstate. Now we'll just act with the lowering operator. Because <coughs> we want to construct eigenstates of total angular momentum. And we know that we were able con to construct them using raising and lowering operators. We showed that that gave uh, the same answer as what we got from solving the Schrodinger equation. So there must be a bunch of states, since this is total, it says total j equals 3 halves. The total number of states with 3 halves is 2 times j plus 1. So 2 times 3 halves is 3 plus 1. There should be four states that have j equals 3 halves. And so we know what those have to be. Those are 3 halves, 3 halves. If I write jm, you guys want to call it j and j sub m. We'll only have one thing called m today, hopefully. So the possible values are three halves, we can lower this z component by one. So we can have one half minus a half and minus three halves. And if we know this one, we can get all these by using the lowering operator. So that's all we have to do. And if we're interested in constructing the eigenstates of total angular momentum, j squared and jz. So this labels eigenvalue of j squared. It's j times j plus 1. And this is eigenvalue of jz. Uh, we only want to normalize those wave functions. So we can forget about all these factors of h bar every time we lower it. So when we apply the lowering operator, there'll be a factor of h bar. 
but then we're going to normalize what we get anyway. So we'll just be dividing out by those h bars. Okay. So what happens when we lower the state? So the lowering operator is this plus this. So L minus can act on this orbital eigenstate, and we'll get a state of 1, 0. And then we use our Clever formula. L is 1 times 2 minus 1 times 0. So that sounds like the square root of 2. And L, the lowering operator for orbital angular momentum doesn't do anything to the spin. Then there's another term with, from the plus S minus. So when S is a half, we worked this out before, half times half plus one, that makes three quarters, minus a half times minus a half, it's another quarter, so square root of one. And that lowers this guy, so it's Z component is minus a half. Now, this thing isn't normalized, but we'd like to have it normalized. So if I took the overlap of this wave function with itself, what would I get? One half. One half? How did we get that? So this with itself would give two. This would with itself give one. So to normalize this, I would multiply by 1 over the square root of 2 plus 1. Does everyone see what we're doing to get that normalization? It's the same as um, if I had a two-component vector and I dotted it into itself. This would give me 2. So we can treat it like a vector space because all of these things are orthogonal with any other one. This one's orthogonal to that. And this one's orthogonal to that. These are individually normalized. Stop me if anything doesn't make sense because this is all supposed to be easy. If it's not, if it doesn't seem easy, then I'm explaining it wrong. Because it's very easy. Yes. So is the J negative and the arrow pointing down, is that an operator or is that an indication of what that's equal to? This is the lowering operator. So I acted with the lowering operator. So if I wanted to, I wanted to write what I actually did here. Um, so this state we know is the three halves, three halves state. So this next state is this is this thing is equal to j minus times the three halves three halves state times some normalization, so some arbitrary factor up front, and then I multiplied by the right factor so that whenever I got from here, I divided out factor so that it's properly normalized. So I, I divided out by 
H bars implicitly. So since we used the lowering operator to get this, and now it's normalized, we know that it must be this. Now we can lower it again, and then we'll find this guy. So we won't worry about overall factors that multiply everything. We'll just worry about relative factors. So let's start lowering. We can lower this guy with L minus. And uh, 1 times 2 minus, now M is 0. So get another factor of root 2. Lowering this makes it a 1 minus 1. And nothing happens to the spin. Uh, we can also lower this guy. And with spin half, that formula always get in the square root is always 1. So we have this root 2 sitting here already, because we need to keep track of the relative factors between these two terms. There's a root 2 from here. There's a root 1 from the lowering operator. And we'll get 1, 0, a half, minus a half. <coughs> we still have this term to do. So we can lower this guy. And we know that we already did that calculation. Lowering 1, 1 gives us root 2, 1, 0. And then I've run out of room. What do I get when I lower this guy? 0, because this is the lowest state. So lowering it again gives 0, or annihilates, which you guys get to say that last quarter. It's fun to say, annihilates. <laughs> the operator annihilates that state. And now something clever has happened, because this, oops, we lowered this and we didn't change the spin. This state and this state are the same thing. So there's an overall factor of uh, this is 2 root 2, and this is 2. So when we normalize that, let's simplify that guy. So if we take out an overall factor of 2, we have 1 minus 1, a half, a half, plus uh, root 2, 1, 0, a half, minus a half. And then to normalize it, divide by the square of this coefficient, which is 1, plus the square of that coefficient, which is 2, square root. So now it's normalized. And that has to be 3 halves minus a half state. 
divide it out by that too. We divide it out because we're, we're trying to normalize the state. So an overall factor we can just throw away, just like the h bar. I mean, if we actually cared about what the lowering operator um, gives us when we act on that state, then we would keep all those factors. But the lowering operator isn't really some actual thing you could do in the lab. It's just a mathematical trick to make life simple. So for this for calculating these states, we don't care about those overall factors because we just want to normalize things. So uh, up there, it says there should be one more state where we get to lower this guy one more time to get 3 halves minus 3 half. So let's go. Lowering this gives 0 because it's already the lowest state. So we can only lower that guy. So that lowers him by 1, so we get minus a half. And square root of 1 up front. There's a relative factor of root 2. Uh, we can lower this guy. And we know that lowering him gives another root 2. And lowers him to minus 1. He was already spin minus a half in the z component. And we can't lower this guy. So it looks like we're done. And yet, yet another magical thing happens. So this state is the same as that state. So normalized state is just and that has to be our three halves minus three halves. And that's a good thing because who said we had to start at the top state? We could have started at the bottom state. Because this is also a unique state. So we could have started with the bottom guy and worked up. And we could have just written this down from line one without knowing anything. So it's good that our calculation gives us what we knew we had to get. That's not cross checkers, though, is it? Hmm? That's not normalized. It is. This is, this is normalized. Because this guy is normalized to one by definition. This guy's normalized to 1, so. But from the previous set. Oh, well, there's an overall factor that we divide out to make it normalized. Okay. So okay. there's a factor of 3, mm -hmm. but so we'll divide by 3. But wait, there's more. Because uh, we started with, there were three states here and two states there. So there were six states, and we found four of them. So what are the other states? So these guys in here, uh, we, so, so far all we've done is find the states with the maximum value of j. There's also states where j is lowered by 1. So our general formula was that we start uh, 
can start with L plus S, and then we have L plus S minus 1 down to L minus S. So the absolute value of L minus S, in this case, is a half. So there should be some states with total J equals a half. Uh, but we saw how to do this before. So these guys, the states with total J equals a half, have to have Jm equals plus or minus a half. And we know that the z components just add. So if we look at these guys here, these guys have uh, these guys have jz equals a half. These guys have jz equals minus a half because zero minus a half is minus a half. A half minus one is minus a half. Zero plus a half is a half. One minus a half is a half. So those states have jz equals a plus or minus a half, and there are orthogonal linear combinations of those states. And since we know that our state with uh, j, total j equals total j equals three halves, and jm equals total j equals a half, and jm equals a half, that state is orthogonal to those these states. So if we take the orthogonal linear combination, we'll find what this state is. So what's the state orthogonal to this? Well, it has to involve the same uh, wave functions, but with different coefficients. So when we take the inner product, so there's some coefficients a and b here. When we take the inner product with this thing, it has to be 0. So let's call them a and b. So if I take the inner product of this with that, I would get root 2 times a from the overlap of this with that, plus 1 times b. We want that to be 0. So there's lots of solutions, because there's an overall phase that we don't care about. One way to do it is to say that this guy is minus 1, and this guy is plus root 2. So that would make this minus root 2, and this plus root 2. So uh, there's a standard convention for how to pick the overall phase. And in this course, we don't care. Because that's just another thing to memorize. And it's got no physics in it. It's just a convention. So it's it's a convention for constructing those clutch coordinate tables, which we don't care about either. Because what's important is the relative phases between these coefficients and the wave function. Yeah? How did you know again that the inner product of that state one half one half? had to be orthogonal to the j equals 3 halves and j sub n equals 1. Because these are eigenstates of j squared and jz with different eigenvalues. So eigenstates with different eigenvalues are al always orthogonal. As 
Okay, so how did you? I don't see what's the difference between that this being orthogonal to that and any other. Why wasn't it orthogonal to the j equals three times n minus? It, one it's half? orthogonal to all of them. Oh, so did you just pick that one arbitrary? Well, I know we know that this guy is constructed out of the same states because the j z values have to be the same. So it's made out of these. It's trivial orthogonal to these other guys because uh, each term in, is just zero. But here, the individual terms are not zero because it's made out of the same states. Well, when we take the full inner product, then it's orthogonal. Okay, so there's one more state to find. Why is there only one eraser today? How can we find the last state? The last state has to be a half minus a half for total j. Lowering. Yeah, so if we lower this guy, we would get that guy. And we know how to lower this, so let's lower it. So lowering 1, 0 gives 1 minus 1. And uh, We've worked out before that that gives us factor of root 2 from here. Lowering a half a half gives us a half minus a half. Um, lowering this guy, 1, 1, will give us 1, 0 with a root 2 from the lowering operator. It already had a root 2. So we can write, that's the same as this guy. So we can put 1 plus 2 here. And lowering this guy gives 0, because this is the lowest state already. So Did I do that right? Ah. There's a minus sign. Phew. Because it has to be orthogonal to this guy. Oh. That minus sign also appears here. Because we got, the first time we got it from lowering the spin. So it gives us a minus one. And lowering this guy gives us root 2 times root 2. So 2 minus 1 is 1. And then we can see that it's orthogonal to this guy. So taking the overlap, I'll get minus root 2 here and plus root 2 there. So it really is orthogonal. Yes? Just to be clear, I think this is right, but when you say overlap, you mean inner product? Yes. So it really is orthogonal, and then we can normalize it. Should I? It's OK if I erase these coefficients now. Everyone's got them. So minus root 2 plus 1. So to normalize it, I'll take 1 over the square root plus 
square of this is 2. This is square of that is 1. So 1 over root 3. So now we've got all six states. They're all normalized up to an overall phase for these guys. So now we know what Klebsch-Gordon coefficients are. All these funny numbers, minus root 2 over root 3, that's a Klebsch-Gordon coefficient. So what we did was we learned how to write eigenstates of total angular momentum in terms of the eigenstates of orbital and spin angular momentum that we're combining. So we could write state with total J and JM, which is made out of some states of L and S. And write that as a sum of some Clutch-Gordon coefficient, which has a bunch of labels on it. So there was an M and an SM that added up to JM. There was an L and an S and a J. And the sum is only over guys where the Z components add up correctly. Because the Z component is just a real number. Real numbers add just like they always did. And this is a linear combination of states with LM and SSM. So that's what we just did over there. We calculated all these coefficients. Because we wrote states with total J as linear combinations of states with specific values of L and S. And that's what we're doing when we're adding angular momentum to find states of total angular momentum. This is a state of total angular momentum J, and it's written as a sum of states of orbital and spin angular momentum. And these coefficients, these Klebsch-Gordon coefficients, are these numbers that appear. Minus root 2 over root 3, 1 over root 3, root 2 over root 3. And those crazy tables, you can look up these numbers or you can use a calculator on the web page. Or you, on the exam, you can figure it out like we just did. This is obviously much more involved. Because <laughs> if, you, if you tried to read that Klebsch-Gordon ta table, did anyone try? Anyone succeed in figuring out what it meant? One person? A little bit, yeah. This is much more involved. Okay, so we're going to do it one, one more time. <laughs> then we can get to atoms. We've got 10 minutes, lots of time. So let's combine a state with arbitrary LM with arbitrary SSM. So the maximum value of J is L plus S. So we know that state is LL times SS. So the Z components are both aligned in the maximum. 
So J, that's the state, Jm equals L plus S. Then we'll act with our lowering operator. We'll get L, L minus 1 times SS. And there'll be some coefficient from the lowering operator. And we can lower this guy, so we'll get LL S, S minus 1. Some other coefficient. Then we'll normalize it. 1 over the square root of A squared plus B squared. So that's the state with Jm equals L plus S minus 1 equals B is the lowering operator once. You're just leaving out M, uh, S sub M and L. <coughs> S sub M in this case is S minus 1. M is L in this case. So then we repeat as necessary. And eventually we'll get to L minus L, S minus S. And that will be a unique state, just like this was a unique state. Because we can't get anything else after we've lowered that many times. Then, once we have those states with the maximum value of J, there are states where J is one less. There are states where J is L plus S minus 1. So again, we try to start with the top state. And we know that we're looking for a state where Jm equals L plus S minus 1 in the top state. But in general, there's that's not unique, just specifying those two things. Because it's some linear combination of this and this. But since we already know this, it is unique because uh, it has to be orthogonal to that. And we know that that state looks like minus b l l minus 1 s s plus a l l s s minus 1. We normalize it as 1 over a squared plus b squared. And then we can lower that guy. So then we'll get L, L minus 2, SS plus L, L minus 1, S, S minus 1 plus LL S, S minus 2. And then we'll normalize that guy. And then repeat as necessary until we get to the bottom of that. Yeah, kind of fast on how we get the C, D, and D term. Uh, the way we just did. We're multiplying, so we got this from lowering this, so we'll get minus b times some square root that we get from the lowering operator. And that will give us c. This guy will get contributions from lowering s here and lowering l there. So oh, so this will be the sum of two terms. Okay. And then if l and s were big enough, then there'll be another state where j is l plus s minus 2. 
and then that guy has to be orthogonal to this, and to this next guy here, because there's three coefficients, so you need two orthogonality relations. Then life gets a little tedious, but nothing you guys couldn't handle. So are there any questions about combining angular momentum? Yeah. So in this case here, if we had uh, two particles spin one half, mm -hmm. and then e, the term with the e coefficient would annihilate, it would be s one half minus yeah. two. Yeah. Is that last state j equal to l plus s minus two? This is, this is, this is jm is L plus S minus 2. Because the Z component is just add. Okay, so now we're ready to do multi-particles. So, five minutes. So if we have two particles, then we'll have a wave function that depends on two coordinates. And our Hamiltonian will have two kinetic terms. And potential can depend on both coordinates. And then when we normalize our wave functions, we'll have to integrate over the position of each of the I think integrate over the positions of both of the particles. Now if the particles are identical, So say that uh, particle 1 has wave function psi a and particle 2 has wave function psi b. If the particles are identical, then the overall wave function could be a superposition of states. So if they're if they're different particles, then we can just say that the wave function is the product of this times that. So if there's an electron and a proton, the electron has one state, the proton has another state, and we just multiply them together. But if it's two electrons, then we have to worry about this symmetrization. identical particles. And experimentally what we find is that bosons always have to have the symmetric combination overall, and fermions are anti-symmetric. So the bosons are the guys with integer spin. So the Higgs boson that no one's ever found has supposed to have spin zero. Photon has spin one. 
Graviton, which no one's ever seen, really. A quantum, a quantized gravitational wave, no one's seen yet. Should have spin two. And the fermions, electrons, quarks, neutrinos. So as a special case, if A equals B, so these are the same wave functions, then for fermions, you have a minus sign, and then this just vanishes. So the Pauli exclusion principle is a special case. So if we wanted to be really clever, we could say there's an exchange operator P. If I exchange the particles and then exchange them back, then I haven't done anything. So p squared is the identity operator. So if, an, if I'm in an eigenstate of p, my eigenvalues have to be plus or minus 1, because those are the square roots. The square gives 1. So if I have identical particles, then interchanging them has to commute with the Hamiltonian. Why? So, hmm? uh, does that have to commute with the Hamiltonian? Well, how could, if they're identical, that means there can't be anything in the Hamiltonian that distinguishes them. If there was, then they wouldn't be identical. So if I interchange them, then the Hamiltonian can't change. So that means we can pick wave functions that are simultaneously eigenstates of the exchange operator and the Hamiltonian. So that means the wave function, if I interchange the coordinates of the particles, has to go back to itself up to a minus sign. And we call these guys bosons and these guys fermions. As we discussed before, in quantum mechanics, there's nothing that tells you that why the spins, integer spins, have to go with this and half integer have to go with that. That only comes out when you include relativity. So we'll just assume that we won't derive it. And I think we're done for today. So office hours today at 4, this week only.